thought I'd make a few brief remarks. And if you can't hear me, raise your hand. Oh, actually, it occurred to me that um, maybe people want to move closer because Tanjeff uh, has an ability to project his voice, but he also has the ability of speaking very softly. <laughs> <laughs> and if I use my own experience as a, as a guide, I might start strongly myself and then I forget. I forget. So, let me know if I forget. Tonight I thought I'd talk on the topic of discipline, and particularly the discipline of mindfulness. When I came back from Thailand in 1990, I noticed that American concerns and American interests in practicing the Dharma were very different from what I was familiar with in Thailand. In Thailand, a lot of people come to the practice looking for refuge, looking for protection. Um, This manifests itself in various ways, some of which are very peculiar to Thai culture. Many people will come to monasteries and they want amulets. If you don't have a good amulet to give them, there's something wrong with that monastery. Other people will come with a sense that they want to make merit in the sense that viewing merit as kind of a bank account that if you've got a lot of good merit, it protects you from the dangers of society because they do have a very strong sense of you know, danger all around them in that country. On the one hand, it's a powerless country and the powers of the world at the moment are much bigger than they are and they're out of their control. And also within Thai society itself, there's a certain element of lawlessness and danger that people are very attuned to. Um, the fragility of their society is something that weighs very heavily on their, on their minds. And so when they come to the practice, they're looking for protection. But what was, I think it was the Duchess of Windsor once said, you could never be too rich or too thin. And in Thailand, the, the, the parallel would be, you could never have too much merit or too many amulets to protect you. So, um, so the, the concept of refuge, protection, is a very strong element in their practice. When I came to America, I found very little of that to begin with. But I think, given our current events, it's time to revisit the revisit the concept. And to illustrate what I think is an inter- a very important aspect of the Buddhist attitude towards refuge, where you really do find your protection in life, I'd like to start with a non-Buddhist story. A couple of years back, someone gave me a book on Shackleton's expedition to the Antarctic. And I don't know if you know the history of his expedition. They went down hoping to land on the Antarctic, walk across, get picked up by a ship on the other side, and get carried home. Well, they never made it to Antarctica. The ship got locked in by the ice. The current carried away from the continent, finally crushed the ship. The men had to leave the boat, carry their dinghies across the ice, finally get into some open sea, sail across the... Well, not sail, but row across the open sea. And ultimately, they all came out. Nobody died. And what I always found very amazing and impressive about the story was that there were at least three main points in the expedition where they all thought they were goners. There was no way that they were going to get through. And yet there were a couple of members of the expedition who said, well, look, we've been trained, we're disciplined. We've learned that you know, if you get in a situation like this, this is what you have to do. It looked hopeless. There seemed to be no way out, but they decided, well, let's do what we're supposed to do. That's the only hope that we have is in our own discipline. And it got them out. They were able to get across the ocean, get to a safe island, from that island go over to Georgia, walk across the island of South Georgia, totally uncharted without any guidance and get everybody back home safe alive. 
And so it was the element of discipline that made all the difference in their, in their expedition. And I think that it's important in our practice of the Dharma that we look at our own attitude towards discipline because it's what is going to get us through difficult circumstances. Um, and reflecting on what is an ele- necessary elements in discipline, I began to realize that they fit in with a list that the Buddha calls our strengths for the mind, strengths that we develop from within. We all have certain of these strengths. The basic there's a list of five. It's conviction, persistence, mindfulness, concentration, and discernment. And they're all qualities that we have to some extent. And the whole point of the practice is to take these qualities we already have and to develop them further, strengthen them until they become something that we really can depend upon when the situation outside is very undependable. The first quality, conviction, means conviction in the principle of karma. Basically, that when you do act on good intentions, the results are going to be good. When you act on unskillful intentions, the results are going to be bad. The Buddha basically said there are two types of karma that shape our lives. Past karma, which, about which you can do nothing. It's already been done. But there's present karma, about which you do have your choice in the present moment. And many times the past karma is so strong that it will influence in a situation so that it's not what you want. But if you make the correct choices in the present, those choices are never lost. The good that you do doesn't disappear. That's a point that has to be repeated over and over again. The good that you do is not lost. When you know that something should be done, you try to develop the discipline to know that ultimately it may seem hopeless in the current moment, but if you stick with it, it will bear fruit on into the future, and you'll be happy that you made that choice. So the issue now is, is what are the most skillful things to do in a particular circumstance? And whatever the circumstances are, whether they look good or look bad, the element of persistence is your second strength that you just stick with what you know is skillful. Um, the Buddha's teachings on skillfulness come in a variety of ways. Some of them are contextual. That if you're in a particular context like this, you do that. You have to be sensitive to the context. Others are more universal and what you might call eternal truths. And they're the ones that a lot of people tend to object to, like the five precepts. Um, people say, you know, I came to Buddhism, I didn't want Sunday school rules, what are you putting Sunday school rules on me for? The reason the precepts are given in such a very simple way is because simple precepts are easier to remember when things get tough. You remember, okay, killing is never skillful. Stealing, illicit sex, lying, taking intoxicants, these things are never skillful. They never give good results. And many times when you feel tempted to go in the other direction, it's, it's good to have a very simple principle to hold on to, to keep you solid, to keep you secure. So the element of persistence comes in as a strength when you start holding to these principles no matter what. The third element is mindfulness. Many times mindfulness is defined as non-reactive awareness or non-judgmental awareness. And for the life of me, I have never seen the Buddha say that. Mindfulness is the ability to keep something in mind. Short and simple. You You know what's right, you know what's wrong, what's skillful, what's unskillful. You keep that principle in mind. Even in, in situations where it's not so clear-cut and black and white, you keep in mind the principle that you want to do the most skillful thing you can think of doing at that time. And so mindfulness here is the element of discipline, that you keep these principles in mind no matter what. And, you, and then you, it's coupled with alertness, which, which watch over, watches over your own actions, watches over the results of your own actions, so that you can fine-tune the principle of skillfulness. So that really does lead to the kinds of results that you're hoping for.
when mindfulness and alertness are applied to the mind, ultimately, together with persistence and conviction, they lead to states of concentration, which is the fourth strength. Um, when we think about discipline, we tend to think about something that's very dry and dreary. But Buddhist discipline built with the principle of concentration built into it. When your mind gets concentrated, there are states of pleasure, there are states of equanimity that you can draw on. This is the nourishment that you take along the path. Um, there's a passage in the text where the Buddha talks about the different qualities of mind you're trying to develop in the practice as kind of a fortress. And concentration, the elements of concentration are food in the fortress. That's what keeps you alive in the midst of whatever dangers you're surrounded by. And so you try to develop the sense of pleasure, the sense of happiness that comes from within. And this gives you a strong sense of refuge that you have a source of happiness that doesn't have to depend on things outside. So that when events outside do change, when things do get uncertain, unstable, you still got something solid within you that you can depend on. One, for your own nourishment. And then two, um, once you have that sense of stability that can't be threatened by things outside, you can act with more courage and compassion in situations where things get difficult and other people need your help. So it's not just an escapist refuge you're looking for. It's a refuge from which you can come operating on a principle of strength. The quality of equanimity is also important here. Um, this might be the closest you get to non-reactive awareness is developing the equanimity through your practice. Um, and Buddhism here doesn't, when they talk about equanimity, it's not kind of a blanket equanimity all around. It's more a sense of where you have to place your priorities. If you look at the way equanimity is explained, it's usually taught as one of the four what they call sublime abidings or divine at attitudes. And they're compassion, uh, excuse me, goodwill, compassion, appreciation, and equanimity. And the standard ways of expressing these, I think, are really interesting. Under goodwill, the expression is, okay, may all beings be happy. Under compassion, may those who are suffering be released from their suffering. Under appreciation is those who have gained happiness, may they not be may they not lose their happiness. Because there's, there's an element of wish in all of these. May this happen, may that happen. The standard expression for equanimity is all beings are the owners of their actions, heirs to their actions, born of their actions. Okay, Equanimity is looking at reality just as it simply is, learning to accept it when you have to. In other words, when you act on compassion or you act on goodwill, you try to develop appreciation for other people, but still things don't work out. Okay, That's when you develop equanimity. Then you have to decide in, in your life, okay, where are the things that I have to... If I can't be of help here, where else can I be of help? If my efforts are not producing results here, where will they produce efforts? So you learn to develop equanimity for the things that you cannot control, things that lie beyond you, and focus your efforts on the things that you can change, where you can make a difference. So equanimity here is selective. You learn which aspects of your life that you have to develop equanimity for because you can't do anything about them no matter how much you would like to. And then you focus on your your, your desires, your, your passion for the practice gets focused on areas where you realize you can make a difference. All of this implies that the fifth strength of mind, which is discernment, seeing where the differences lie, what's really important in life and what's not important in life. And you realize that the most important thing that you can develop are these qualities in the mind. This has to be your number one priority. Things aside from that come second because it's from the qualities of mind that you can create happiness for yourself and for the people around you. So this is the starting point that you, you have to work on. There's a lovely story in the canon. Although recently I heard someone say they didn't like it because it was life-denying. Um, I think it's basically the Buddhist point that there's something more important than life. 
which I think is an important teaching that we have to keep remembering, because otherwise, if life were the most important thing there is, it's pretty hopeless. Because where does, where does life go? <laughs> I mean, where does life go? <laughs> it's inevitable. You're going to die, right? And the question is, okay, you're going to die. Are you going to be the type of person who, before you die, so you kind of scratch and pull other people down with you, or are you going to die with dignity? And this is a, a very important issue in, in, for maintaining our balance in, in, in our lives. The story I was going to tell you about is a monk in the time of the Buddha who was going to go to a very wild and uncivilized part of India. And he went to take his leave of the Buddha, and the Buddha said, you know, the people over there are pretty wild and uncivilized. What are you going to do if they curse you and yell at you? And he said, well, I'm just going to think these are very good people and they're not hitting me. (laughs) And he said, well, what if they hit you? I think they're very good that they're not stoning me. You can see where this is going. Well, what if they stone you? Well, I think they're very good in that they're not stabbing me. What if they stab you? I think they're very good they're not killing me. What if they kill you? Well, other people have had to die through suicide. At least my death won't be a suicide. (laughs) And the Buddha said, ah, you you can go. (laughs) You're worthy to go. In other words, he realized that the most important thing at that point was, was going to be the quality of his mind the state of his mind. And he worked on developing that refuge. Once you have that refuge, other things pale by comparison. What's really important is maintaining your state of mind, maintaining the the actions and the words that come out of that state of mind. That's your refuge. And so the discipline here is learning to have a very strong sense, okay, what's skillful, what's unskillful in life, where your priorities lie, and then maintaining those priorities no matter what the situation, no matter how hopeless it gets. This is where the principle of conviction ultimately comes around to discernment again, because you realize that the principle of action that the Buddha teaches in karma really is your refuge. You're able to maintain your, your, your own well-being, the well-being of people around you, by holding on to these principles. There's another story in the, in the canon which I think is useful. It's about an acrobat and his assistant. The acrobat goes standing up on the end of a bamboo pole and his assistant is supposed to stand up on his shoulders. He says, okay, I'll look out after you and you look out after me and that way we'll be able to perform our tricks, come down and get our reward. And given given the way people have to balance (laughs) when they're on the bamboo pole, she said, no, that's not going to work, Master. I maintain my balance, you maintain your balance and that way we protect each other. That way we'll get down from the pole eventually and earn our reward. And the Buddha said, in that case, the assistant was right. If you look after your own practice, it protects other people as well. And when you're protecting other people with your kindness, goodwill, and appreciation, okay, that protects you as well. So the protection is is not just for yourself alone, but it's by practicing this discipline of mindfulness where you maintain the sense of what's skillful and what's not skillful, and you determine you're only going to do what's as skillful as possible. You're protecting yourself and the people around you. And this way, no matter how, you know, hopeless or difficult or out of control the situation outside may seem, you've got this firm compass within you, and that that's what's going to make all the difference. So those are my thoughts. I was surprised I said them so quickly. <laughs> Is there any discussion or any questions? When I give a Dharma talk with my eyes open, my adrenaline goes faster, and so my thoughts come out faster. <laughs>
<laughs> With my eyes closed. <laughs> Which part would you like repeated? The whole thing. Okay. Five qualities. Okay. Conviction. Conviction is conviction, the principle of karma. And we have a strange attitude towards karma in a lot of Buddhist circles, that it's fatalistic. And Buddhist karma is not at all. In fact, the Buddha was arguing again and again and again against fatalistic doctrines. He says, your experience of the present moment is composed of two things. Well, three things, actually. One is the results of past karma, which you can't control. Two is the actual action you're making in the present moment, which is car- the karma being done. And then the results of some of the results of that action are going to be felt immediately. That's your present moment. So you can't control the past, but you do have the choice in what you're going to do right now. And so the determination is to make that choice as skillful as possible because you've got the power to shape your life through your present actions. So when the Buddha asks you to be in the present moment, it's not just to be and enjoy and drink in the present moment, but it's in look at the present moment, what's the most skillful thing to do? And sometimes it is just being quiet. Other times you've got to make choices outside. And so you learn how to look at the situation around you. There's a passage where he's talking to Rahula, his son. Um, I think I've mentioned this in talks here before. It's one I keep pulling out every time I give a Dharma talk. Um, You have the feeling that before the Buddha comes to see Rahula that day, Rahula told a lie. Because the first thing the Buddha does is he tells him basically, told a lie. Okay. Told a lie. False. Yeah, sorry. Okay. And so he um, talks about how empty people are when they tell lies and don't feel embarrassed about it. But then he goes on from that principle of being truthful, saying, okay, if you want to under- look at yourself, understand yourself, look at your actions. Look at your intentions, one. And then if you're going to do something, ask yourself, okay, this action I'm intending to do it, is it going to be harmful or not? Is it going to be harmful for me, for other people, or both? In which case you don't do it. Is it not going to be harmful? Okay, go ahead and give it a try. And notice that, give it a try, because you don't really know for sure. But still you take the you experiment. Okay, while you're doing it, if you see immediate reaction results that are not skillful, stop. If you don't see any unskillful results, continue with it. And then even after you're done, you're not done. You reflect on the long-term results of your actions. And so in this way, as I said earlier, there are some principles where the Buddha said, you know, skillful things are pretty much clear-cut rules, but the others which you have to use your own powers of observation. So that's how you apply the principle of karma to the present moment, to your practice. Okay, conviction, number one strength. Number two is persistence. You just stick with it no matter what. When things go easy, you stick with the practice. When things get hard, you stick with the practice. You're tired, you stick with the practice. You're frazzled, you stick with the practice. You sit down, it doesn't seem to make any sense at all, you stick with the practice. Just keep doing it. And because things are going to get more difficult than this. Don't say I'm putting a curse on you. <laughs> but you know, aging, illness, and death are going to come, and and it's not going to be easy. And so you've got to have something you can, you, these skills that you've developed over time, and the element of discipline is what keeps them going, in no matter what the the situation is. And so that, you know, the law of karma is not a traffic law. You see these signs that say, okay, no parking, you know, 4:30 to 6 a.m. Um, Tuesdays and Thursdays. It's not that kind of law. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. What you do is going to shape things all the time. 
there's no time out. There's a common belief in Thailand that the law of karma works in the monastery, but not outside the monastery. <laughs> um, but it just doesn't work that way. So you've got to stick with it at all times, no matter how hard it is. And you know, learn to live with the fact that sometimes you're not going to see immediate results. It's not going to be immediately satisfying. This is where the principle of conviction comes in, because sometimes the results of karma take time, especially if you've got some bad karma from the past that's blocking the good karma you're doing right now, the results of the good karma. But you know, it's got to come out at some point. Nothing good is ever lost. Okay, that's persistence. Mindfulness, as I said, it's the ability to keep something in mind. You're sticking with the breath, okay, you're keeping the breath in mind. If you want to develop non-reactive awareness, you keep that idea in mind. That's what the mindfulness part is. And then you add other things in, in, on top of that. What you should be doing right now. Should you react? Should you not react? What kind of choices should you make? Okay, you ask yourself, okay, what's going to be the most skillful thing here? In particular, what you want to look at your intentions. What intentions am I acting on? Are these skillful intentions? If you find any greed, anger, and delusion in the intentions, put them aside. There's a great story they tell in Thailand of a <coughs> of a monk who was the only monk in that time and that time who could tell the king off. He'd actually, when the king was younger and, and, and as a prince, he ordained as a monk and had this monk as his sort of teacher. And then ultimately the monk went off into the forest, and when the young prince finally became king, he sent word out, I want that monk in the city. I need somebody who can tell me off. And so they put out this dragnet through the forest, and all these poor forest monks were getting dragged into the officials and say, is this the monk? No. Is this the monk? No. So finally the real monk came out, and the king put him in a um, monastery across the river from the palace. And there are lots of great stories about the monk telling off the king. Uh, but there's a skill. You don't just tell off a king just saying, you fool. You don't say those words. Um, there was one time when there was a funeral in the palace. And I don't know if you know anything about Thai funerals that can go on for 100 days. They put lots of tea leaves in the coffin and lots of guavas. Apparently that's what keeps the smell from getting bad. And then they invite monks in every night. This is in the palace they'll do this. And four set of four monks come in to chant every night. And as you get towards the end of 100 days, they've gone through all the, you know, the senior monks and well-known monks and popular monks in Bangkok, and you're getting junior monks. And there was one night this, this, the set of monks came in, and they had never seen the king before in their lives. And they were afraid of him. He had been a monk himself a long time, so they knew that if they made, made a mistake in their chanting, he would know. And so they're sitting there very nervous. And finally, the king comes in with all his pomp and circumstance. And they take one look at him, and they run behind a curtain. <laughs> and the king says, what is this? Am I a monster? Am I an ogre? Disrobe these monks immediately. <laughs> Which is, he was a monster and ogre. Um, and so the, the royal decree was written out and sent over to this other monk across the river. Well, the other monk was sitting at his writing table. And he had a little Buddha altar next to him with a little incense stick um, burning. And so he took the royal decree and he burned three holes in it, sent it back. And the, the message, well, you know, the three fires of Buddhism, passion, aversion, delusion. The message was to put them out. So the king sees these three holes burned in his decree and he says, okay, the monks don't have to be disrobed. That's how you tell off a king. So, <laughs> while we're at it, there's some other stories about how you tell off a king. Um, this was during a period in Thailand when the old capital had been destroyed and a lot of the old Thai customs had been destroyed along with it. And the king decided we should have some new Thai customs to take their place. And so he came up with the idea of having a, uh, 
decorated boat parade at the end of the rains retreat. Every monastery in Bangkok was going to have to decorate a boat, and then they would all come before the royal reviewing stamp. And whoever had the prettiest boat would get to get a uh, prize. And so the day for the parade came, and all these really nice boats came down the canal, except for this one little canoe with a monkey on it. <laughs> and the monkey was tied with a leash and had a sign on his back. And first the king's immediate reaction was, who's making fun of me? So they checked the roster and said, uh-oh, it's the monk's name was Somdetto. It's Somdetto's monk, uh, monastery. And so they said, well, get the sign off the monkey. See what it says. And the sign on the monkey said, we're willing to lose face in order to save cloth. 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 C-L-O-T-H. Cloth. Yes. And it, did, it rhymed in Thai, but it didn't make any more sense in Thai than it did in English. Okay. <laughs> and so the king said, what the... So a few days later, he invited Somdetto to the monastery for a meal, and to the palace for a meal, and said, suppose someone put a sign like this on a boat. What would it mean? And Somdetto said, well, it might mean, that's how you talk to a king, it might mean that monks don't have any resources of their own to decorate boats, and it's certainly not appropriate for them to ask donations from the lay people to decorate boats. So they probably would have had to pawn their robes in order to decorate a boat. And so they decided to save their cloth and lose face. That was the last they ever had that parade. <laughs> so, so, but anyway, the point here was intention. So you've got to look at your intentions primarily. Be mindful of your intentions at all times. Because that's what's going to determine the results of your actions, the quality of your actions. Okay, when you're mindful of intentions, where is that going to take you? It's going to take you to a state of concentration because you're right there with the mind in the present moment. And being mindful of intentions requires that you use directed thought to keep with them and evaluation to make sure they're good intentions. Well, directed thought and evaluation, those are the beginning factors of, of jhana or mental absorption. Keep them focused on one object skillfully and the mind settles down. Once the mind settles down, you've got that basis of pleasure and equanimity that we were talking about earlier to nourish the mind. And when the mind is nourished like this, it's going to be a lot more willing to accept the instructions of discernment or insight. Because the mind is kind of like a person, if you're hungry and tired and someone comes up and criticizes you, what are you going to say? What are you going to do? You're going to lash back. But if you've had a nice meal, you're in a good mood, you're feeling well rested, and someone comes up and says, you know, you really have been doing this wrong. You might do it better this way. You're going to be in a lot better shape to accept the teachings. And it's the same with the mind. And, you know, discernment comes along basically says, you know, you've been stupid all the time. You've been making all these unskillful moves and you really know better. Nobody likes to hear that, not even from your own mind. But if the mind's feeling nourished and well cared for in this state of concentration, it's going to be a lot more willing to take on lessons like that, to notice your own, you'll be able to notice your own mistakes, benefit from them. And this is the essence of discernment. When you've got these qualities, okay, the mind has strength. And when you have that inner strength, that's your refuge that you can depend on. In which case, you don't need to depend on amulets or things outside. You don't need to depend on the security of the American society or whatever. You've got your refuge right there. And it's a refuge for yourself. And as I said earlier, okay, when you're not feeling threatened, you're going to act a lot better to other people. Most of the evil in the world comes from people who feel they're weak, feel threatened. They lash back. But when you're operating from a sense of sense of strength, okay, you have nothing but good to give other people. So I've given the talk twice. <laughs> <laughs>
Any other requests? <laughs> hmm? Third time? Else? Yes. That sense of discernment, how then would it tell you off in a diplomatic way? Could you give some examples? Um, okay, when you're feeling greed for something, it would say, you know, do you really need that? And part of your mind will say, well, yeah, I'd like to have that. Well, no, we didn't say, do you like to have it? Do you really need that? That's one way. The same with anger, okay. Who is being burned by your anger right now, they would say diplomatically. You're sitting there fuming about something or somebody, okay, and you say, oh, who's being burned right now? Well, you're being burned. Is this helping you at all? So that would be a diplomatic way of dealing with it. Um, I had a case in Thailand where my teacher was extremely diplomatic. Oftentimes he could be very quick and very harsh, but there are also times he realized he was going to have to be diplomatic with me in order to get the results. And one time was um, about my second year I had been with him. I had a very strong sense throughout my time with my living with my teacher in time that he knew what was going on in my mind in a lot of detail. And if you're living with someone whose radar is really that good, you're very careful about what you think. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I was really good for two years. No thoughts of lust at all. Because as soon as they appeared, I said, no, I can't think that. Well, one night I finally broke down. This was getting too much for me. And I just thought about lust, lustful thoughts for two hours one night. I was amazed that I could sit for two hours and think about this. Um, and part of the problem was as I would have these thoughts. Another part of my mind was saying, well, you can't think this. He's going to know. And the other part said, well, who cares? And I said, well, I'd care. Because I've got to face him tomorrow. And it was kind of back and forth like this. And I just got myself all tied up in knots. And so the next morning, um, the ritual was that I would, after our meal, he would go back to his hut for, to drink some tea. And if I had anything I had to discuss with him, I would go up to him while he was having his tea. Otherwise, I would wait. And when he'd finished his tea, he'd go into his room to meditate. Then I would go up and I'd clean up on his front porch. So I decided, this is one of those days, I'll just wait. And he had a cup of tea. And then he decided to have another cup of tea. (laughs) And then he started reading a little book. And I realized he wasn't going into his room anytime soon. And it was my duty to clean his porch. So I said, well, he's not going to kill me. So I went up and started cleaning around. He looked at me and he said, you know, that kind of meditation is a waste of time. (laughs) and and I realized that was probably the best thing he could have said so that's that's how your your discernment talks to you diplomatically anything else? Hmm? really good radar it's, it's, one of the, it's one of the talents that some people develop with meditation. They know what other people are thinking. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I saw it not only in my, own, in my own case, but with a lot of other people as well. So. I wish I had that ability. Yes. From all of this stuff, if, if the monastery is a place to go for refuge, mm-hmm. then it would seem to me that 
stuff that you, you have talked about this evening, or mm-hmm. you talked about this evening, is not very applicable to the monastery, but is more applicable outside of the monastery. How would, is, is that a true statement? And if so, if not, mm-hmm. how does it apply to Monasteries in Thailand don't have huge walls around them that are impervious to society. It's The life of the monks is very much sort of inter, interwoven with the life of lay people, much more than it is here. And when people go to monasteries, you know, it, you know, they don't leave their defilements at home. They take them with them. And sometimes they try to be on their best behavior, but some people's best behavior is not all that good. <laughs> so you have to learn all kinds of lessons. Secondly, in a society where the, the monkhood is, is, is a very well-established tradition and it's expected that every man is going to be ordained at some point in his life, you get all kinds of people coming through. So, Yes? I had a question. Um, I guess when I've heard about these before, there's been some notion of balancing mm-hmm. uh, one against the other, and I, I didn't quite understand that in the way that you described it. Mm-hmm. So... With the five, five strengths. And, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in concentration, you make a persistent effort. It's learning how to be skillful in the effort. The, the balancing, the teaching of the balancing of those five strengths is, doesn't, doesn't occur in the canon. They talk about you, you've got conviction and then you build on the conviction with persistence and they develop in kind of a nice linear way. Mm-hmm. Um, the notion of balancing comes in some of the later texts. And at that point, you've, the element of persistence gets more changed, turned into the idea that you can just put lots and lots and lots of energy into it, which can sometimes destroy your concentration. So persistence is more an element of just kind sort of sticking with it, sticking with it, sticking with it, sticking with it. And it doesn't mean that you have to just throw all your strength in at once, but you learn how to just develop the kind of rhythm that you can maintain over a long period of time. And as you work with that, maintainable sort of rhythm or maintainable level of energy, okay, it grows. And it actually helps your concentration. So, sort of mutually enforcing. Anything else? Yes? Um, I have a question about, you were saying that your teacher sometimes could be harsh. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, what confuses me? <laughs> Just in terms of Well, I guess he felt in my case there were times when he had to be really strict with me and come down hard or else I just wouldn't notice the lesson. Did, did you feel that was true? Um, at the time I resented it. But after I, after I began to realize, well, yeah, I probably did deserve that. And it was, it was largely because I had found that I could trust, trust his motives. That kind of relationship is different, yeah. The element of trust that's involved. You have to build up that trust over time. Like I found with my own, some of the younger monks that I trained down in San Diego, it takes a good year before I can really feel I can speak with them frankly. And by that time, we've had to develop that relationship of trust. 
that they realize okay, <coughs> what my intentions are to them. And also, there were, there were times when he was just trying to test my powers of concentration <laughs> to see if he could knock them off. Because as, as, as you say, I mean, life in the monastery is a lot more gentle sometimes than life outside. And you want to make sure that, you know, your students' powers of concentration really are resilient. They can take a few knocks. But again, as a teacher, he, he said his role as a teacher was like being a, a, a boxing instructor. You have to know how much your student can take. So you've got to pull your punches sometimes. But otherwise, you want that to be this guy to be a good boxer, and so there's sometimes you have to give him a little test. <laughs> it, it comes down to the element of trust and the relationship. The first year I was there, he probably couldn't have done that with me. I would have run away. But after I, I got to know know him very well, I said, "Okay, I trust his motives," and I found I was benefiting from the teaching that way. And as a result, I became kind of... <laughs> I, I also learned a lot of Thai from him. And sometimes I didn't realize exactly how harsh he was being. <laughs> Until I started using the same expressions with other people. <laughs> so There's a long story with that one, but I'll save that for another time. Yes? Uh, your statement about... Meditating on lustful thoughts was mm-hmm. a waste of time. Reminds mm-hmm. me of this uh, list that was on the bulletin board back at IMS. That said, uh, the Buddha has said that the following things are a waste of time to mm-hmm. talk about or mm-hmm. meditate on. Mm-hmm. And it had this whole list of about 15 things mm-hmm. armies, kings, right. mm-hmm. stuff like that. And I, no one could tell me where that came from or, or you know, what the. It's in the canon. <coughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And do you remember what the. There's a, it's, it's in the Anguttara Nagaya, the tens. Go and look on Access to Insight. And there's one, I think it's called Topics of Conversation. There's another passage in the Udana, where monks are sitting around talking about how, which is the more powerful king, Basenadi Gosala or Bimbisara. And the Buddha comes and says, oh, what Dharma talk am I interrupting as I walk in here? And says, well, it wasn't much of a Dharma talk. It was, um, we're talking about kings. And he said, you know, this is really not appropriate. And then he goes down this list of inappropriate conversation topics. And then in, in the Anguttara, he gives a list of ten appropriate ones. So look it up. Can you say that again? Where, where you the Anguttara Nikaya? Um. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, you go into Access to Insight, and it says A-N-G-U-T-T-A-R-A, and click on that. Access to Insight? Okay, it's, there's a website out there that's got a lot of um, suttas from the Pali Canon, a lot of teachings from the Thai forest tradition that you can download into your computer. What's the URL? Hmm? It's yeah. to org. Access to Insight.org. All together? Yep, all together. One word. You can get to it via our website. Our website. Our website. Mm-hmm. 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 And um, in fact, you can download the whole website onto your computer <laughs> if you want. <laughs> if you have a big enough hard disk, yeah. Mm-hmm. This is not the whole canon. This is, yeah, but they're trying. They're, they're, they're adding more stuff all the time. <sighs> Don't bank on it. 
I'm one of the adders, and I'm not going to get up to the whole canon any time anytime soon. So, okay. yeah. Anything else? Yes. In today's time, it seems like um, it would be useful to have a new list of things that are not worth thinking about. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Really, today. Yeah. I mean, my husband was, just came home for a short time and went away. And did you hear about the anthrax? What happened? Mm. Do you know what they're, they're really saying that about? Um, what will happen if the Laden gets access and his network gets access to? The nuclear weapons of Pakistan has. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm very conflicted about that. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, all I'm doing right now, my daughter's friend was over. Mm-hmm. I'm making dinner. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm doing. I'm making dinner for the children. And I said goodbye yeah. to them anyway. Mm-hmm. I feel very said, conflicted. So I don't know if I'm right. Mm-hmm. I I'm, I'm almost have a feeling of I don't want to know a lot. Yeah. You want to know enough to make sure that your mind is in good shape. And that, and that that list is a very good one. It talks about you know kings, armies. We don't have the kings anymore, but we've got presidents, armies, alarms. Most of the news you read on is alarms. Okay, just, what do you want to do with that? It's ridiculous. And 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 you know you read so many times about how you know 30 years later it came out that what was in the news really wasn't what was going on. Um, and so why bother? It's it's a long list. Yes, yes. That are worth worth useful. Okay, the things that are useful talking about are, okay, persistence in the practice, um, virtue, concentration, discernment, release, knowledge of release, um, learning to be content with whatever you have, material in terms of material goods. And I can't remember the other four or five. But um, it's basically, you know, talking about the practice and encouraging each one another on the practice. Mm-hmm. And the question came up earlier today about, okay, well, what if you do feel you do want to get involved in sort of political action of some kind? And in that case, I think it's best to look at that kind of activity as, as a form of generosity. And there are no hard and fast rules about generosity. The Buddhist people would come to the Buddha and say, you know, where should I give this gift? You know, what, what should I give? And he says, give what you feel you can, give where you feel inspired. And I think that's the best advice in terms of you know, civic action, social action, political action. Think of it as a form of generosity. One more story on how to tell off a king. (laughs) The king was sitting on the boat landing in front of the palace one day, drinking with his courtiers. And he had made this monk, the title was Somdet, which is the highest rank you can give to a monk. It's given only to very high-ranking princes and very high-ranking monks. And Somdet comes paddling his boat across the river. Now, in those days, if you were a Somdet, you didn't paddle your boat across the river. You had someone paddle it for you to show respect for your title. And so the king immediately saw this. He said, what is this? You know, how can Somdets paddle their own boats? And he says, when the king of the country is drinking in public, Somdets can paddle their own boats. (laughs) 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 Is that enough for the night? Okay, thank you for coming.